Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. We often credit the transcendentalists with introducing a revolutionary new appreciation for nature into American spirituality when they claim that God could be found in the forests, mountains, and fields. In Church in the Wild, Brett Granger reconsiders the history of the years leading up to the Civil War. He argues that it wasn't the transcendentalists, but evangelical revivalists who transformed the everyday religious life of Americans and spiritualized the natural environment. Here to tell us more is Brett Granger. He's Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Villanova University. I'm pleased to welcome him to NBIR. Hello and welcome. Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me. Evangelicals aren't the first people one might think of when asked to name a group of Christians who are into nature spirituality. So tell us a bit about the genesis of this topic. How did you come to write about this subject, these people, this particular time and place? Yeah, so that's why it's such a great story, right? It's so counterintuitive. Um, I have to say, you know, I, I probably shared most of those prejudices about evangelicals, at least historically, until I got working on this project. Um, the way I got into it really was um, as a graduate student reading, you know, the classic essay in American Studies by um, Perry Miller uh, from Edwards to Emerson. Miller is a giant, you know, in 20th century um, American religion. And he lays out this really persuasive case for arguing how we go from orthodox Puritanism with someone like Jonathan Edwards in the uh, 18th century to a basically Unitarian and heterodoxy by, by the 19th with, uh, with Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he, he sort of argues essentially that there's a kind of logic that goes from Edwards to Emerson. And in the process, he sort of leaves behind the, you know, the, the true followers of, of, of uh, Edwards, the revivalists. And it just seemed to me in reading this, as beautiful as this piece was, and as persuasive as it was, that he was really missing an important piece of what happens in the 19th century. So I, I decided to, to try and tell a different kind of story uh, for how Americans became nature mystics by focusing on a much more representative group than the transcendentalists. I love Emerson and, uh, and Thoreau, but the reality is very few Americans actually encountered their work in the 19th century. Um, evangelical revivalism was the most, uh, I mean, the largest uh, religious movement uh, in American culture in that period. And so it seems to me that if you wanted to kind of tap down, drill down and get a sense of how, of what everyday Americans uh, thought, felt, believed about the natural world and its spiritual capacities, um, you would want to start with a, a representative movement like revivalism. Take us back in time. You note that Christians have a long history of taking their religion out of doors in worship and for contemplation. What are some of the antecedents to the trends that you track in the early colonial period and an early republic in the U.S.? So in other words, how does this predate the United States? Right. Yeah, I think that's a big a big piece of this. That it's not just an American story. That it's really a 
uh, an Atlantic story or a transatlantic story. So, I mean, I think really important for the 19th century uh, is to understand the ways in which evangelicals are pulling on materials, devotional materials, especially uh, from England, English Puritanism and from German Pietism. So these are two movements that we think of commonly as as comprising what's, what's called heart religion. So this is a really important turn in the 17th century in Europe, away from thinking about religion as a, as a matter of catechesis or doctrine or, or kind of theological statements towards a heartfelt piety. And it's in, in the materials of, of pietists, these pietists and, and Puritans, that we really see the development of a, of a kind of robust nature spirituality, um, a real sense of God's immediate mystical presence um, within the physical world. And those materials, through a variety of means, devotional manuals, hymns, uh, all kinds of guides to prayer, filter down into the revivals of the 19th century because the evangelicals are looking for materials and they're going back and they're rediscovering these classics such as Richard Baxter's uh, Saints Everlasting Rest. And they're republishing these and in some cases plucking them out of obscurity and putting them in cheap print and putting them in the hands of men and women to speed or fuel their devotions. I want to get back to some of the practices and hymns and whatnot that you just mentioned. But before we go there, you note in the book that there are certainly anxieties also related to outdoor worship, since the pagans and papists do it too, an Mm -hmm. alliteration in your Mm -hmm. book that I really Mm -hmm. loved. So what kinds of worship are Protestants trying to distinguish themselves from? Yeah, so that's that's a big part of the story is really looking at the practices because these are people who 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 never produced great you know literary classics like uh, like Walden's uh, Thoreau's Walden, right? So so I spent a lot of time looking at the practices and uh, the first part of the book I spent a lot of time looking at practices of conversion. So as you mentioned these these uh, practices of outdoor worship connected to camp meetings, to outdoor baptism, to field preaching. And as enthusiastic as evangelicals were to go into the woods to find, to find God, they also, you know, lurking in the back of their minds always was this anxiety about idolatry, of turning the creation into an, into an, into an idol. And while where did they get these fears, right? They got them from the Bible. Uh, The Bible's full of warnings against idolatry. But what often goes unnoticed is is the way in which the Bible also warns against the dangers of infidelity. And by this, I mean uh, the fear or the risk of not recognizing God's immediate presence within the natural world, within within, uh, the orbit of one's immediate a circle, right? Evangelicals are often called uh, the hotter sorts of Protestants, right? These are people who don't want to just talk endlessly or debate endlessly uh, theology, right? They want to feel God. They want to see Jesus. And so um, one of the things I try and track in, in this book is the way they toggle back and forth between their enthusiasm for these practices of nature religion and their anxieties, right? That both are always present. They're trying to find a kind of middle way between idolatry on the one hand, um, uh, uh, you know, turning the, cre- the creation into an idol and infidelity on the other hand, not recognizing God's immediate presence within the, within the world. 
Right. And in the background, something that some of our listeners might be familiar with is, of course, uh, spiritualities like Native American spiritualities that are using that same natural mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. in the Americas for the kinds of worship that, of course, these Protestants uh, <laughs> uh, try to distinguish themselves from. That's it. Exactly. They see dangers uh, all around them. They see, uh, you know, Native American practices, which they can cons- consider, you know, um, uh, polytheistic in, in ways that for them, at least remind them of the practices of the ancient Canaanites. They see uh, papists, you know, Catholics. Um, and they're also aware of reports coming back from from missions to the far corners of the world where they also see practices that to, that, to them look very similar to, to Old Testament uh, paganism. So risks and dangers all around, but then also a, a desire to carve out uh, a space for themselves to engage in practices of nature reverence that to many outsiders really look pretty much the same. I dug up some instances from um, colonial uh, Philadelphia Baptists who had this practice of uh, upon coming out of the Schuylkill River, they would immediately bow down in front of this big rock and 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 pray at this rock. And you could sense the anxiety in the Baptist historian who was writing about this because he was quoting verse after verse that would that justified this practice, um, and that to at least his own mind would separate it from uh, you know the worship of 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 wood and stone that evangelicals at the time were. Were, were decrying in, in, uh, in, in India and in, in other places where they were sending missionaries. So anxiety is always, always uh, an element. I was really struck by the importance of poetry and hymnody throughout the book. So now we're back on, mm-hmm. on more familiar evangelical ground, perhaps. What are some of the poems or hymns that stick with you most after having finished this book? Yeah, yeah. So... Back to the the practices of conversion, Um, I spent quite a while thinking about outdoor baptism and the ways in which, uh, you know, it was commonly practiced in the time. If you were a Baptist, you would get baptized immediately after your conversion. And so if that was in January, you know, and and the pond was frozen, well, you were were going in the water that day. Um, (laughs) And so they would cut you know, they would cut a hole in the ice uh, approximately the size of a, of a grave, you know, as if to drive home the, uh, the, the parallels, of, you know, dying to Christ often meant uh, coming close to a real physical death. And in one of the, one of the shape note uh, hymnals, so these were, were hymnals based on an older model of, uh, of musical notation that's largely fallen out of practice today, but they're very popular among revivalists in the 19th centuries. These, uh, these, these shape note hymnals traveled all over the country with the revivals. And I found one hymn in, in one of these uh, hymnals that uh, it was called Winter Soldier, and it and it talked. It, it was almost a kind of magical incantation against harm. It, it you know it said basically you know uh, if if your if your hearts are warm for Christ, you know rise, believe, and be baptized. And and it would talk about the never fearing the never fear the frozen stream, and winter soldiers never flee. There's all these invocations that would steal the hearts of those about to go into these frigid waters uh, as a as a witness to their their love of Christ. So so that was one hymn especially that stood out for me. There were others as well. Sometimes my students, um, for listeners who aren't aware, I'm I'm in Montreal, and sometimes my Canadian students <laughs> remark on the fact that Baptists 
were strangely unpopular mm-hmm. in colonial Canada compared to <laughs> the colonial United States. And now I have suddenly learned the reason why. Because it's cold here. <laughs> Who wants to go in a river in Canada? Really at any time of the year. So that probably that probably did them in north of the border. It's true. <laughs> so speaking of things being cold here in Montreal, this question may arise from the fact that our last date of frost was just a couple weeks ago. So I'm deep in gardening mode. <laughs> and let's be honest, I'm killing a lot of slugs. What are some of the facets of the evangelical engagement with non-human creatures? How do these factor into their experience of nature, animals, insects, mm-hmm. etc.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I'll take the example of insects because evangelicals, I don't. There's this trope that often goes around with with evangelicals today. It's inaccurate, but you'll often hear uh, evangelicals repeat this uh, this this thing that apparently, if you slow down uh, crickets, you know the sound that they make. Uh, it it's it's like a small symphony, and it and it repeats some of the notes of uh, of uh, some works by Bach, um, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but. Um, uh, Revivalists in the 19th century were really fascinated by insect noises, and they talked a lot about uh, insect uh, music as as kind of participating in a harmony of the spheres, a kind of cosmic music uh, between heaven and earth. And and evangelicals in general really looked to the animal world and even the insect world as as models of piety, as exemplars in holy living. Um, we tend to think, you know, today, evangelicals, you know, they just want to sort of instrumentalize the natural world um, through a kind of dominion theology, this idea that nature has just been given to us as a as a dumb object for us to to use to, you know, uh, to bend to our will. But but what I saw over and over again in these devotional materials was was the way in which nature, animals, um, plants, insects, uh, even the sun and the moon were seen as as models in piety. The reason being that uh, the doctrine of the fall for evangelicals, this idea that humans um, are are depraved through their participation in in the in the fall of of Adam, um, the belief was was widely held that this fall affected human beings far more than the rest of the natural world. So in other words, we were the ones who fell, and nature itself was barely touched. And so what, uh, what a, a believer acquired through the spiritual senses, through the healing of our senses um, accomplished through spiritual salvation, was the capacity to actually see this playing out, see the ways in which all of nature was constantly engaged in, uh, in praise and adoration of, of heaven. So in other words, they were much better at living um, the higher life than human beings were. And you see this over and over, them looking to the natural world for cues in, in the life of sanctification. One of the main threads in the book for me is the oscillation between solitude and society. We talked already mm-hmm. about some of that toggling back and forth between uh, seeking out nature and also anxieties related to, to nature worship. So this is another kind of toggling back and forth, solitude and society. So why and how did evangelicals try to balance these two aspects of their religious lives? What was the issue with with moving too far 
into solitude among the crickets, for example, yeah. or the insects? Yeah. Or are, were there some people who were able to to really gain all they needed to out of their spiritual life from solitude or all they needed to in their spiritual life from society? So this is another area where uh, evangelicals are constantly bucking against their own impulses and their their impulse their deep their deep heartfelt impulse is to spend really as much of their time as possible in prayer right uh, in in the business of of religion and so what they constantly need to do is is kind of pull themselves back a little bit from that and remind themselves that you know the business of of the spiritual life is is spreading the gospel, is is ministering to the needy, is, you know, participating in the affairs of the world, essentially. And, you know, the reason this is such an anxiety for them, it's hard for us to, to kind of put ourselves in their mindset today, but the reason it's such a burning uh, concern or fear for them is that they're always looking over their shoulder at uh, Catholicism. And this is another case where Catholics were seen as, as, as idolaters. They're also seen, um, always rhetorically cast as, as, uh, solitaries, right? The danger, the fear is always that, uh, that you'll become, uh, uh monkish in your, in your habits, you know, that the, the saying, you know, never, uh, what is it? Never praise a cloistered virtue. You know, this idea that virtues should be cultivated in society. And there's an inherent suspicion of those who spend too much time on their own. Um, uh, the, the, the thought being then that you're not, you know, sharing the love of neighbor um, that Jesus, um, uh, you know, calls on his, on his disciples to demonstrate so what you see is is basically wherever someone starts, um, an individual begins to demonstrate a solitary uh, habit, uh, others will kind of come to their defense. And an example of this that I found uh, was in um, a 19th century um, Methodist named Hannah Singh Bunting. She was from Philadelphia. She was one of the early... Um, pioneers in the Sunday school movement. And she died at a young age. She died in her thirties of TB. But before then she kept a very um, intense and detailed spiritual journal. And she described uh, her, her travels into nature. She spent a lot of time outside of Philadelphia riding in the countryside. Um, and uh, when her journals were collected and published after her death, um, the Methodist uh, minister who who edited them, wrote an introduction, and he was really um, intent on announcing that her mysticism, as he described it in this in this book, uh, in her journals, was thoroughly orthodox. Um, she said, he actually said it doesn't have, he said it was rational, it was scriptural, and he said it didn't have uh, the tinct of the cloister on it, right? Which is a, a phrase I just love. Um, so that's an example, and I see there are many others of this kind of fear to, on the one hand, hold up this kind of a woman, Hannah Singh Bunting, as a model of of, of solitary devotion uh, in pursuit of the love of God, right? But at the same time, consciously having to defend it everywhere against uh, confusion with uh, Catholic forms of, of solitude. 
you have a line that I really like in the book that says the true Christian was half monk, half evangelist. <laughs> yeah, they've got to always combine those two, you know, and and what you see time and time again is is that their woodland devotions, you know, they'll spend time in retreat, always going on retreat in the woods to their bower of prayer. But at the end of it, you know, in their hymns that, that say this, there's a hymn called Bower of Prayer from a shape note hymnal that says this, right? At the end of your mystical uh, uh, experience, you have to go back into the world, right? You can't stay on the mountaintop. You got to come back down. Mm. And you see this over and over again. So Hannesing Bunting, for example, I assume was a relatively well-off white woman. Mm -hmm. You tell us quite a bit though, as well in the book about African-American Christians Mm -hmm. and their relationship to nature. And as you note, they had their own polyvalent set of meetings that differed from their white co-religionists. What are some examples of what you found as you started to look at the African-American materials? So it's a really uh, interesting case study of, of, as you said, the multivalence of uh, natural symbols. So evangelicals understood that the natural world to them was encoded with, with, with messages from God. Um, often very personal messages for them. So it wasn't as if a tree always said the same thing to everybody. But what I did find that was rather striking in my work was was the way in which many of these contemplative practices, so practices, in other words, of, of studying and reading the book of nature uh, as a parallel testament, you know, written by God, by the hand of God, at the beginning of the world. So, so practices of contemplation often arrived at very different uh, interpretations of natural symbols. One example of this uh, was um, meteor showers or falling stars. So many, um, many of the white uh, evangelicals who I noted who contemplated uh, falling stars would dwell on the on the kind of apocalyptic associations. In other words, um, the Book of Revelation mentions falling stars as as indicative of the return of Jesus and the judgment um, of of the world. And so, in other words, if you looked up in the sky as a white evangelical and saw a star uh, falling, a meteor shower, you would be turned to think on your sins and to meditate on your sins. What we find is often the case with African Americans in this in this period is they took a very different message from these signs of judgment. Um, what they interpreted as enslavement and women was something much more joyful, much more uh, in the way of deliverance and jubilation. Um, falling stars, the end of the world, meant that God was coming to uh, give justice to the world and to repay the cruelty of the slave owner. And so you see, I read accounts of slaves clapping their hands and jumping up and down uh, with celebration at this, this anticipation. Um, and at the same time, noting the fear that these, uh, uh, these extraordinary occurrences struck in the hearts of their slave owners, uh, precisely because these, these were white uh, men and women who were precisely moved to reflect upon the moral implications of their slaveholding. Um, so that's one example of the multivalence of these symbols and how they could uh, play out very differently for black and, and white contemplatives in the period. 
I was utterly intrigued by your final two chapters. In the first one, you talk about healing waters, and in the second one, about electricity. Mm -hmm. So before getting to the actual substance of those chapters, I was curious, was it very evident to you as you were writing that you were going to focus on these topics as the capstone to a book about nature spirituality? <laughs> or were there, were there a bunch of contenders and then water and electricity one out. Yeah. I mean, I knew I wanted to write about water because um, a very important influence on me in developing this project was uh, the work of Alexandra Walsham. She wrote a book. She's a British scholar. She wrote an incredible book about 10 years ago called The Reformation of the Landscape. And she talks about the ways in which uh, mineral springs in the English context during an earlier period, the Reformation period, were taken over um, uh, often uh, saints' wells uh, and so on, and taken sort of stripped of their Catholic associations, but then re-imbued with a new set of sacred properties. So I knew I wanted to write about, about water in some capacity. And I knew also that I wanted to do something with electricity, uh, but I wasn't quite sure where I would do that. And uh, what happened was I eventually settled on this structure for the book where I, I broke it up into three, three, three pieces, basically. The first part of the book looks at uh, practices of the new birth, so practices of conversion. Um, the second section of the book looks at practices of the new life. So I talked about that a few min minutes ago and uh, discussing contemplation, practices of, of, of holy living and growing deeper into the, the life of Christ. And then the third section I settled on was were practices of what I called the new earth, and so these are practices associated with anticipating the world to come, something that evangelicals then and now spend a great bit of time thinking about. And so um, what began to be apparent to me once I'd settled on that structure was the way in which um, electricity especially just captivated the spirit of this age, not just evangelicals, certainly. In fact, we rarely have heard about evangelical interest in electricity, but the more I dug into it, the more I realized that this was, for many evangelicals, a, a really auspicious sign of the latter days. That, that um, in other words, electricity was not as we think this this kind of banal um, current that we use to charge up our our laptops and, and and iPods, but but actually was a kind of liquid. Uh, invisible life and possibly for many scientists in the period supplied uh, uh, the, the basic materials of life itself. And so, in other words, you know, scientists and theologians uh, in this period were, were, were both interested in the ways in which electricity um, supplied a kind of vitalist account of the world, uh, explaining, you know, the deepest mysteries of of time and space in some ways and so so once i once i settled on electricity then i started looking for some case studies and i i found this uh in, in um the archives of the of the congregational library in uh in boston this marvelous uh instance of a scandal involving a congregationalist minister from western massachusetts theophilus packard totally orthodox in his theology who gets completely uh, besotted with uh, practices of, of animal magnetism or mesmerism. So this belief 
that individuals' clairvoyance essentially can can use a, a special kind of X-ray vision to look inside the bodies of of suffering patients and diagnose illnesses um, using using the very very same kind of uh, invisible energies that were believed to uh, to um, explain phenomena such as light and magnetism and heat. Um, so there's just this enthusiasm to use electricity as a way to to explain, uh, uh, basically solve a, use a key to to open every lock. You noted a moment ago the importance of older ideas about vitalism in this new science of electricity. Mm-hmm. Could you clarify, though, what you mean by vitalism? What, what are these ideas? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically, most Western philosophies functioned uh, uh, as some kind of uh, vitalist system until Newton. Essentially, what you had with when Isaac Newton came along, what he did with with his theory of, of, of gravitation was to demonstrate essentially that matter was dead. Forces moved matter. He demonstrated that clearly, uh, but matter itself, the stars, the planets, uh, didn't hold within itself any animating force. Previous to that, uh, Aristotelian vitalism was the most, um, I guess, popular form of this. Aristotle argued that every object has within itself its own telos or its own end. And so if a rock fell, you know, from the sky or an apple fell from the tree, it was because that apple had within itself its proper end, which was to fall. What happens after Newton is is scientists embrace uh, what's called a, a mechanistic universe, a sort of billiard ball universe um, with all these uh, objects being pushed around by different pool cues. But what persists is is an anxiety that this is somehow robbing the world of, of force and meaning and life and power. And so you see vitalism persist in a variety of, of places, particularly in the biological sciences and in what becomes chemistry, uh, a desire to to kind of um, identify a vital spark uh, in the case of, of biology, a vital spark um, behind all uh, animate life. In other words, every every living thing um, is alive because it it participates in some way in the life of the soul. Um, this this thing beyond uh, death. So that's the principles of of a vitalist uh, system, and it appealed to evangelicals because. They were very anxious about a mechanistic universe. They were very fearful about this idea that uh, God operated like some kind of absentee landlord who set the world spinning at the beginning of time and then sort of stepped back. That wasn't the the God that evangelicals uh, worshipped and prayed to. They prayed to a God who was immediately present, immediately available and giving life and comfort uh, to everything. Right. And so vitalist systems, vitalist philosophies really appealed to evangelicals for this reason. When you're talking about electricity in the book, actually, one of the moments where it really crystallized for me were the analogies that they were using and making between electrical currents mm-hmm. and God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example, right? Um, I found uh, an electrotherapeutic manual um, by a, a gentleman named T. Gale, who was wandering around upstate New York in the early 19th century with a very primitive electrotherapy device. He would basically attach these chains 
to people and then run a primitive electrical current through them uh, with the promise of healing just about any ailment that uh, that afflicted you. And really for, for Gail and for others, what um, convinced him of the the God-given uh, dimensions of electricity and its God-given powers, right? What were the striking analogies between electricity and the sun, right? That somehow electricity functioned um, in, the, in the physical world the way that God functioned in the spiritual world. And so just as electricity was bringing light and healing and life to the physical body, so God brought life, healing, and and vitality to to the soul, and they found these these analogies deeply convincing. Uh, not simply, in, you know, similarities or artistic inventions. For them, this was analogy was something that was written into the cosmos by God, and there for us to discover. I want to get back to the healing waters and springs that that we were talking about before. And I actually, I read this book at a lakeside cottage and I was just a short drive away from Poland, Maine, Mm. which was the site of one of the famous springs that you discussed. And I had Mm -hmm. really no idea about this aspect of spiritual history in the early U.S. Republic. So as you noted before, with respect to England, healing waters and springs had a long history in European religion. But you also note that it was bound up, these springs and, and waters were bound up in uh, new forms of nationalism and millennialism mm-hmm. in the early U.S. Republic. Tell us a little bit about how this all played out. This is the irony of American nationalism, right? Is the way in which in the, in the 19th century, Americans go about distinguishing themselves from Europe. And arguing that they're superior, you know, um, in in many ways to European civilization, younger, stronger, right, um, future oriented, more natural. Exactly is is by mm-hmm. is by pulling on the very currents of romanticism that they find in Europe, um, and and another way that in which they do this specifically is by pulling on the traditions associated with with mineral springs or spa culture. So spa culture. Not as we know it, with like pedicures and massages and hot stones and stuff. But essentially, Wait, do you know this? Do you go to spas? <laughs> I I'm privy to certain uh, information <laughs> about spas. I live with someone who frequents them, and so I receive <laughs> ethnographic reports from her about what goes on in these palaces of pleasure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so basically, in the 18th century, it was a practice of of refinement. So you'd go to these um, facilities. Well, like Bath in England was a good example, and you'd immerse yourself in these, you know, sulfurous waters. They just to us, you know, they stink. They're disgusting. But individuals who frequented these sites were just focused on their therapeutic properties. They were believed to offer cures to, uh, you know, every kind of ailment you could imagine, and and particular types of waters were believed to be more efficacious at curing certain ailments. So. In other words, you get to America, and they begin to discover these these sites. Uh, many of them sacred for centuries to Native Americans, but by the 19th century, at least on the East Coast, Native Americans had been forcibly removed from these uh, from these sites, uh, sacred sites, and and so what happens is Europeans move in, and 
And I think rather than see these as sort of secular sites, we need to understand the ways in which they were doing a certain kind of religious work for 19th century Americans, um, certainly tied up with nationalism, but also tied up with this kind of eschatological sense of America, that America was providentially uh, gifted with these springs, that God himself, as as uh, one of my writers, Thornton Stringfellow, a Southern uh, Baptist, wrote, uh, he, he argued in his writings, in his newspaper articles, that these springs, uh, like white sulfur springs in, in Virginia, were given directly by the hand of God for curing the maladies of the world. That, and, and that he believed that scientific investigation would in time prove that these springs uh, provided the cure for every possible affliction known to humanity, and that they were being uncovered at this moment because we were living in in the latter days. It's interesting how you mentioned Native Americans, because as you were saying, in the English context in the Reformation, many of these sites had been previously used by Catholics, mm-hmm. and then and then taken over and uh, reinserted new meaning mm-hmm. into them. And and you note in the book that, in fact, these sites, although perhaps given by the hand of God, often had a mythologized origin story mm-hmm. where Native Americans would show some wounded white man mm-hmm. the springs or something mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. and, that, and that this would offer um, some sort of authenticity to the site. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that, that was surprising to me in my work. Um, I think if you just uh, heard that, oh, evangelicals, appropriated these these sites from Native Americans, what you would probably assume would be, well, they wouldn't want anything to do with Native American practices. The fear being, of course, that Native Americans worship different gods and polytheistic gods or animistic gods, gods in the, present in the landscape. And so what you would want, what you would expect would be that they would appropriate these sites uh, for their, quote unquote, you know, natural properties uh, or for their health properties or for their scientific properties. But in this period, health and science and religion were really one tangled ball. They didn't didn't tease them out. And what you find is that evangelicals were actually really enthusiastic to repeat and augment and in some some cases tinker with these uh, these these histories, these native these histories of, of Native American usage. And I think part of it goes back to this this question of of tracking the tension right between idolatry and infidelity. I think evangelicals, as 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 concerned as they might have been of of not worshiping Native American gods, they were also really struck that the Native Americans, without any exposure to the Christian gospel, had been able to recognize the spiritual capacities written into this landscape. And so they took that as a as a kind of natural theology. They actually saw that as a, a point of common ground in in some ways that Native Americans recognized what was what was in these waters, and they took that as authorization for what they were doing with them, which was really not just a, a, a therapeutic regime; it was a, a practice of spiritual uh, uplift and transformation. Something else that I learned from your discussion of healing waters was that, in fact, the definition of miracles had changed over time, Mm -hmm. that in the Middle Ages, there were three categories, Mm -hmm. as you note, natural, preternatural, and supernatural events, and that these categories actually still echoed into the 19th century. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting uh, piece of it. So by the time you get to the 19th century, 
you really have have two of those left. You've got the natural and you've got the supernatural, right? Everything has to be either a product of natural law. That's that's a function of this of this uh, Newtonian turn when when Isaac Newton brings in the theory of gravitation. Everything in in this mechanistic universe has to 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 follow some kind of natural law. Or on the other hand, it has to be supernatural, right? So it has to function as a contravention of the law of nature. So it has to be um, rare and it has to be inexplicable according to natural law. So Moses, you know, parting the Red Sea, that's a classic example of a miracle, right? Um, but, but what I found in my materials was that evangelicals, they were, they were fascinated by these mineral springs. They wanted to explain uh, how they worked and they, they, they found both of these categories unsatisfactory for different reasons. The natural law argument didn't quite work for them because these springs were by their very definition extremely rare, very, very rare. And their waters um, uh, were, you know, their sources were hidden in the, buried in the earth. They couldn't be observed directly. And so they just didn't fit that, that kind of natural law argument. They also didn't really think of them as miraculous, at least in the way that we think of that term. There was there was an order to them. There was a regularity to them, uh, but they still the, the the cures that they offered right seemed also to to uh, to offer something really prodigious. So what I find is that they really the way that they they wrote about these springs, uh, more often than not they they end up back at a position that had really been abandoned uh, in the early modern uh, West. And that was, the, it was a medieval category of the preternatural, this idea that, that there's a place, uh, there's an intervening category between natural law and, and the miracle that, that kind of supplies, well, it fits with the vitalist system, essentially, that there's, there, there is a vitalist principle uh, that God created at the beginning of the world a life-giving principle that in some way is connected with with Christ that's present in the world and that is bringing about um, uh, the will of God, but that also enjoys some kind of uh, independence in a way, is some kind of um, autonomy from God to do its own uh, thing. So that that was where the preternatural came in for me as a helpful category in understanding what these evangelicals were trying to do in avoiding, on the one hand, identifying God too closely with the natural world, uh, idolatry, or on the other hand, exiling him from, from this world that he created, which was natural law. Now, Church in the Wild has been out with Harvard University Press for a few months now, so you must be utterly refreshed and re-electrified. <laughs> Are you working on something now? What, what's next on the docket? I've decided to go in a totally different direction with my next project. One of the things that came, one of the things that I really discovered in the process of writing this book was how close in many ways uh, 19th century evangelicals are with with metaphysicals in the period, what we'd call the New Agers today, right? They just want to want to see, feel, and touch energy all over the place. So with this new project, I, I, I decided to, to move into the 20th century and to look at metaphysical religion more directly. And 
basic the project as I'm working on it, and it's really still at the cocktail napkin sketch stage. But I'm interested in in practices of religious eclecticism or these habits of combining um, religions together. We think of this as a very modern thing to do, uh, and I'm interested in understanding particularly how this comes about um, in the modern world, not combination or, or syncretism itself, because we know that all cultures and all times are always combining elements. But more specifically, how, how we go from a situation, say, in 1890 in America, where syncretism is essentially prohibited, at least publicly, right? You can't come out uh, as a fan of syncretism in the late 19th century in America. A century later, by the 1970s, um, we have a situation where syncretism has gone from a prohibition to a virtual prescription. You see people publicly owning this for the first time in American life as a mass option uh, that you don't need to choose or convert to a particular religion. You can rather combine within yourself elements of different religions. So the name of the project is uh, Fusion Religion. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in jazz and jazz fusion from this period. So that's one example, one case study that I hope to look into, but it's really at the very beginning stage. Wonderful. It sounds fascinating. And I'm glad to see that your interest in music, <laughs> we got so much poetry and hymnody in, in church in the wild. It's nice to see that your interest in music will carry over Thanks. into, uh, into the next project. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat on NBIR about your new book. Thanks, Hillary. This is so much fun.